passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Happy Easter. It is John Pollock and Eric Marcotte. Here we are on Easter Sunday coming at you live, even earlier than usual. Eric, when I asked you if you could do 11 a.m., how daunting of a ask was that on my behalf? How are you doing this Sunday morning? Oh, no, 11 a.m. was way better than me because I could just stay up and it kind of matches with my my generals. 1 1 p.m. is a bit tougher, so this was absolutely perfect for me. I'm a very happy man right now. Okay, well, that, that's actually good to know. I actually usually made it later because I thought I was accommodating you for your late Saturday nights. But um, earlier is fine with me as my, my day typically begins at around, uh, well, my kids decide when my day begins, anywhere from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. On a good day, 7 a.m. But here we are. We have UFC 287 to discuss. The UFC's return to Miami after 20 years, 20 years since we got Matt Hughes and Sean Shirk. Eric, back when you were... um. How old would you have been? Let's play this game. How old were you during UFC 42, April of 2003? Oh, wow. I've been four years old, I think. <laughs> Maybe five. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I wasn't, exactly, I was, I wasn't uh, staying up to watch that one. My goodness. Uh, well, th- well, there we go, everyone, putting everything into perspective. Uh, but they had a much more successful event this time around, 20 years later, uh, doing nearly a $12 million gate at the uh, recently renamed Kaseya Center in Miami, Florida. And boy, were the, were the stars out in full force at this event in Miami. I mean, the roll call here, it was, um, it was like the, um, it's like the the Republican nomination um, spiel here. We got we got Donald Trump. We had Don Jr. in the background. Never, I Don Jr. didn't get any uh, camera time, as I can recall. He was just like a background figure. Kid Rock, of course. Um, Mike Tyson was there. Uh, Logan Paul was there. I mean, my goodness, could you have imagined a better a better dinner party? That photo Dana White sent out. Donald Cerrone wearing his Donald Trump T shirt. It's like, man. The UFC knows its audience. They know their audience, Eric. I think they briefly showcased some very uh, lowly, uh, low-level celebrities like George St. Pierre and Kamaru Usman in attendance as well. But, you know, just just not the same level of star power. No, that dude from Yellowstone that they showed on camera, dude, crickets were accompanying him. Now, I, I understand Yellowstone is very popular. This man was not in this arena on this <laughs> night because, dude, it was just they show him on camera. I'm like, is this not being shown in the arena? Because not a person reacted to this poor individual. Uh, they, they were saving all of their love for uh, somebody else. Well, tonight we are, uh, this morning, I should say, we're going to go through all of the, uh, the the pay-per-view. And we will, uh, if you want to throw in any super chats, you are welcome to do so. Uh, we are going to be discussing off the top the, uh, the main event, Alex Pereira and Israel Adesanya. Their, their second MMA fight, but their 
fourth combat sports fight with Alex Pereira having Adesanya's number at every every juncture. Beat him twice in kickboxing. Watched Adesanya come back and rise to the top of the UFC middleweight division. So Pereira decided, you know what? Enough with this kickboxing stuff. I'm chasing this guy in another discipline. And he and he stalked him, got the title fight, beats him last November, and it all comes down to this. I I I've got to say, I was really anticipating this fight quite a lot, Eric. There were so many stakes involved here for Adesanya that we will get into, but this was essentially feast or famine for him. Not to say he would never fight for a title again, because I don't know how many people you would be necessarily favoring Pereira against, but a loss here. It does send Adesanya into a bit of a spiral in this middleweight division when you're staring at four losses against this guy throughout your career. Yeah, it's been a while since I was this excited for a big fight going into fight week. Um, their last fight was super entertaining. And despite Pierre being up three to nothing going into this, I, I, Israel Adesanya entered this fight as the betting favorite, which shows you exactly uh, the strange way in which these three fights have gone until this point. It tells the story perfectly because here is going back to the November fight. It's a fight that Adesanya is winning until he's not, not all that different from Usman and Leon Edwards. Although I would say it was a more competitive fight between Pereira and Adesanya. But if you're Adesanya, like what, what are you taking from that loss? Are you making wholesale changes or are you just making small little adjustments from the last fight? It's, it's very tough to assess a loss like that. And also taking it in such short order after that loss. I mean, we can going into this fight, like part of me is thinking this might have better served Adesanya if he had some more time removed from the loss. But uh, ultimately, this was this was as dialed in as I've ever seen Adesanya throughout the week, uh, the walkout. And then that first round, like this dude was laser focused. A bomb could have gone off in this arena and he would not have blinked. He just looked at another level of concentration here. Definitely. There was absolutely no underestimating Alex Pierre at this point. And I, I'm sure Israel Adesanya was completely aware of how important this fight was in terms of his standing in the division uh, if he were to lose to Pierre for a fourth time. So the the walkouts are very intense. I mean, this this had such a gigantic buzz uh, attached to it. And the first round, it's it's very methodical by both individuals. They are trying to establish their their leg kicks. They're making stance switches. Uh, it's it's Pereira with his calf kicks, and Adesanya goes to the body with several kicks. But this was a razor close round. I lean towards Adesanya, but I thought this was a coin flip of a opening round. What what did you take from both of these fighters in the opening five minutes? Yeah, so I gave the slight edge to Adesanya. I thought his offense was a bit more varied, attacking the body, the head, the leg, all three levels, while uh, Alex Pierre was a lot more focused on just landing leg kicks. And you know what? I did think that you could very easily give the round to Pierre because his leg kicks were the most damaging thing throughout the round, the most effective offense. And yet I thought that Israel Adesanya was just a step ahead of him. So razor close round, not the most action-packed one, but uh, I gave it to Adesanya. So we go into the second round, and now Pereira is closing the distance, and he starts going to the body. He connects with a left hook, and then Israel Adesanya, he summons the gods, okay? And he digs deep, and he gets the right hand from hell, and he drills Pereira over the top, and then boom, uh, it's... uh, First of all, there there was a low kick by Pereira that kind of buckles Adesanya and follows with a knee to the body. And that's when Adesanya responds with uh, one right hand, 
immediately followed by another one. And on the second one, Pereira drops. And then the final hammer fist, the hammer fist that came from the gods, as Adesanya would state afterwards. And he knocks out Pereira at four minutes and 21 seconds of the second round to regain the UFC middleweight championship. An unbelievable knockout. And we will get to the post-fight speech because it was its own main event in and of itself. But this was as much needed of a win for Adesanya as possible. Like somebody that could certainly still be a very marketable star and would many would believe the number two middleweight in this division. But a loss to Pereira, I mean, you could just see the the weight off this man's shoulders. I don't know if I've ever seen a fighter this jubilant from a victory before because a win or a loss, it represented such different paths in terms of his short and long-term future in this division. If Israel Adesanya went down for nothing to Alex Pierre, that's it. There is no fifth fight at that point. I think there's a, as close as the fight could have been. It could have been a, an exact repeat of their last two bouts. There is not a fifth fight if he loses. I was like, no, no it's one, one too far. We can do horseshoes. We can do bowling. We can do running. We are not fighting ever again. Uh, what more do I have to prove at, the, at, at that point? But yeah, this was, uh, I mean, for Adesanya, like, just think of, the presence that Alex Pereira has been over his career since 2017. And it was like this, this nightmare was over for him. I mean, it's, it's still three to one, but nonetheless, it is, uh, he, he gets the last one and a, a pretty emphatic one here, um, to regain his championship. But it was, um, you know, Adesanya afterwards, he was stating that he was playing possum to lure Pereira in. And then, dude, this right hand just cracked him. I mean, this will be up there. It's probably not the knockout of the year, but in terms of the stakes, pretty, pretty high, pretty high in terms of what this knockout represented and the history behind these two, the story going into the fight. And, and for that, the, the dramatics, maybe the most dramatic knockout of the year is going to be this one. It was a terrific finish. And honestly, the second round is super entertaining. Uh, Alex Perry didn't win this fight, but I thought he looked pretty good while it lasted. He got a bit reckless towards the end, not really defending himself as he tried to finish Adesanya against the cage. But all in all, he looks like a very legitimate high-level fighter in MMA. So I'm looking forward to see what he does next as well. I do not think it will be another fight against Israel Adesanya, however. No, I think that we're... I'm not going to dismiss the idea of them fighting again down the road, but it certainly does not seem to be um, in the, you know, Adesanya stated after the press conference that, you know, Pereira is going to have to work his way back to a title fight. Uh, Dana White is suggesting he's going to move up to light heavyweight, which I don't know how he would necessarily have that, that knowledge base of the guy that was going in as champion. Uh, and then he's viciously knocked out. So I would not take anything uh, of his uh, career path post knockout uh as uh concrete but do you like that move for Pereira he's certainly very big for the middleweight class light heavyweight is is that a better suit for him or do you do you want to see him develop here at middleweight um I I don't feel too strongly about it one way or the other because listen he's he's a big guy a really big guy but as far as I know he hasn't had any problems making weight to this point it doesn't seem like that's an issue for him Uh, with that being said Light heavyweight's a very weak division, so it's going to be pretty easy to go far in that one. Uh, I don't know if there's as many wrestlers looming at light heavyweight as well, which could be something that uh, plays to his benefit. Uh, either way, there are a lot of interesting matchups for him remaining in a middleweight as well, if, if he's to stay there. Yeah, I mean, he 
I mean, he leapfrogged so many contenders to get the title fight that there's ample opportunities for different fights for Pereira. But then Adesanya gets onto the microphone and he he takes the microphone away from Joe Rogan and addresses people, earth. And he tells the people at home, whether you are human, an alien, whatever life form you are, that he hopes that you can at one point in your life feel this level of happiness. And he talks about uh, his comeback here, winning this fight, and then proclaims that that last hammer fist was from the gods. It was from the gods, Eric, that descended upon uh, Israel Adesanya's right hand and and gave him the power to stop his rival. I mean, if ever this was the ending to a, a Marvel film, this this was it. <laughs> it was a hell of a post-fight interview. He went full motivational speech here, and it was fantastic. Uh, he was so happy. I've, I've rarely seen a fighter this happy uh, as he was defeating Alex Pereira, finally, after all these years, regaining his title. And that energy translated completely uh, from this post-fight interview. So you may have also noticed before the speech that Adesanya goes towards the cage and he just like flops down to the mat. So people are like, is this him just doing a taunt uh, of Pereira? Kind of. So at the post-fight press conference, he explains what he was doing. He said, quote, I'm petty, bro. I remember the first time that Pereira knocked me out in Brazil. His son came into the ring and then started to just lie dead next to me. I'm like, you effing little asshole. I'll whoop your ass if your dad don't do it for you. I looked for his kid and I pointed at him and I saw him and I copied the taunt just to remind him. Dude, that that is as petty as it comes to find the man's child that you have just knocked out to further add salt to the wound. I mean, that is a that is a next level of uh, pettiness, I would say. Israel Adesanya having beef with a 10-year-old is totally in character. It is the most Israel Adesanya thing I have ever heard, and I'm in no way surprised by his actions there. I mean, if he was 10, then that means that kid was probably around four years old when that uh, <laughs> when he was doing that taunt before. So um, nonetheless, Adesanya is your new champion. We've talked about different paths for Pereira. Uh, for Adesanya... It's not as though the contenders list is all these fresh opponents. Is the unexpected winner of all of this Hamzat Chimaev, who has not fought at, at middleweight in quite some time, missed weight for his last contest uh, last year at welterweight. But you cannot deny that that probably represents the biggest fight for Israel Adesanya. And I've got to say, of all the potential title fights, yes, it's it's a big fight, but I think if if you had such a problem with Colby Covington get a t- getting a title fight, I look at like Chimaev and missing by that egregious amount at welterweight, and then he is get it, given a title fight in his first fight moving back to the weight class. That is more egregious to me, even though it's it's a huge fight. So I think you have to be at least consistent when it comes to who's getting these title fights. Well, well, John, he missed welterweight for that fight, but he made middleweight. He was under the middleweight limit, so that's why he... Uh, <laughs> he didn't miss middleweight. This, that was his audition for this title fight. <laughs> and then he gets uh, Kevin Holland and just for, uh, decimated Kevin Holland in, the, in that fight. But um, d- do you see that potentially being the, the next fight? 
Um, it's it's definitely there. I, I think it's probably going to come down to Chimaev, who seems kind of, who has seen uh, slightly opposed to moving up to middleweight in the future. He said a lot of the times that he would like to stay at welterweight and win the title there. But I think if he says, "Oh yeah, I'm moving up to middleweight. I want a shot at the title," it's going to happen right away. Why? Because Israel Adesanya has already beaten everybody. He's beaten most of these guys twice, and the guys he hasn't beaten, Robert Whitaker has probably beaten twice. So there just isn't a lot of movement in the middleweight division, and I don't think it's be too tough in another division to move up or down and get the shot. Did you see Jan Blahovich? Do you see Jan Blahovich on Twitter? This man says that he wants to move down and wait to challenge Israel Adesanya for the middleweight championship. That is the worst idea I've ever heard. I was uh, if I was Adesanya, I'd say, "Cool, meet me at 185. I would love to sit back and watch you make 185." That to me sounds uh, ridiculous. <laughs> I would be um, more than willing to sit back and watch that one happen. Jan Blahovich moving down to middleweight. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, that's, listen, that's luck, we, yeah. we're living in a world where Jose Aldo did m- make a successful move down to bantamweight, so that one to me floored me at the time. So you can't. I, it ever floored me too, those. but uh, that's ten pounds as opposed to twenty pounds. I just, I don't think, I don't think Jan has it in him. Well, I just look at um, these middleweight rankings, and as we're sitting down and looking at potential uh, matchmaking, we're looking at Whitaker beat him, Marvin Vittori beat him, Jared Cannonier beat him. Paulo Costa beat him. So if you throw out Hamzat, are the matchmakers sitting down and saying, you know whose time it is? Drickus Duplessis. Yeah, I don't think that's in the cards quite yet. Uh, Drickus is going to need a big win. Maybe, I mean, he'll probably be the next guy who gets fed to Robert Whitaker in all honesty, but it's in a tough place because, like I just said, Israel Adesanya has already beaten everybody. And to get a title shot, you pretty much have to beat Robert Whitaker. And he easily beats everyone who's not Israel Adesanya. So it's a very stagnant division. It was a very dramatic fight. Big story here of uh, Adesanya getting the the victory, and and we will see if the uh, the MMA trilogy occurs with these two down the road. I'm very curious to see Alex Pereira and where he moves forward. It's not as though this is the youngest guy. He is 35 years old. This is his first uh, UFC loss, and and where he goes after this, if it is in fact a campaign to light heavyweight or moves his way back to middleweight, so uh, up that division. We move on over to Gilbert Burns and Jorge Masvidal. And Masvidal coming into this a plus 350 underdog, but the most popular fighter on this card, I would state. As the fight begins, chance of 305, let's go Jorge. And it's a very slow start as they are feeling each one in, each one out. Uh, Masvidal is going for, for leg kicks and then several right hands connect for Burns, but the Big moment of the fight comes at the end when he stuns Masvidal as he enters to get a takedown and then finishes the round with hammer fists. And that, to me, was enough for Burns to solidify the first. In the second, this was all Gilbert Burns. It was one-way traffic in in this round, and he ends up uh, lifting up Masvidal, dumping him in onto the mat and entering his guard. Very little was happening, though. And then Masvidal, at the end of the round, Again, does this like flying knee tease, but not with all the uh, the momentum and gets caught with a right hook. So that takes us to the third round. And th- the broadcasters are trying to make this sound a lot closer than I felt it was um, that, you know, it's a it, it, it's a close fight. It's a close fight. And the third uh, was not close. This was uh, Burns again, just uh, rocking him with a combination that began with a right uppercut. Another big right hand lands and there's power shots connecting and. Dude, at one point, Burns is just flowing at, at this point with his striking. Uh, gets him down with about a minute left, and he works from half guard, drops some more elbows, and goes to the back. 
as the fight comes to a close. I had Gilbert Burns winning all three rounds. Uh, what did your scorecard reveal? I had the exact same scorecard as you. I thought it was 30-27 for Gilbert Burns. I did not think this was as close of a fight as the commentary team did. I mean, the, the first round was competitive because it was very, very dull. Neither fighter committed to much. But but from the second round onwards, this fight was all Gilbert Burns. who got the better of Masvidal on the feet as well as on the ground. We went to the scorecards, 30-27, 30-27, and 29-28 for Gilbert Burns. And this probably signals the end of Jorge Masvidal's uh, career or does it he gives a speech afterward and never he doesn't technically say I'm retiring but he said everything but that in this speech that you had to imagine this is the end for Masvidal although um this is going to be one I file in as let's let's revisit this at some point when this guy the fact is he states I started with nothing now I'm a multimillionaire and the fact is there are plenty of big fights that I could still see being offered to Masvidal that if he wakes up one day says, Hey, I never said retirement. I, I have had a, a change of thought because I'm being offered multi-millions for a Conor McGregor or a boxing fight. So we will see if this is the end of Jorge Masvidal, but he certainly led you to believe that he was calling it a career. And this performance, he is certainly out of the running of being, I would say an elite welterweight. Like this was a very distinct um, difference in class between these two fighters. Yeah, you can see he's physically slowed down a lot. He's not as durable as he used to be, and he's been doing this for 20-plus years. There's a lot of miles on there. It will always be one of the most uh, surprising things in the sport that Jorge Masvidal ended up turning into the superstar he became in the final years of his career. But uh, it was a lengthy one, and it was an eventful one, especially in these last, I don't know, six years or so, maybe a bit less. I think that for, for Masvidal, like he was a very, in terms of his star power, very late in his career. But I mean, to to his point, I mean, it it clicked at a time that he capitalized on it, made a lot of money in the in those last few years. Twenty nineteen was an unbelievable year for him between uh, the Ben Askren knockout that will be synonymous with him and the Nate Diaz fight, which was gigantic at Madison Square Garden. So he, I mean, a guy that has just. um as Eric mentioned, fighting for 20 years and came up through strike force and then coming over to the UFC where he was sort of, you know, he was in and out on the raw, on the wrong side of, of some decisions, but always an interesting, entertaining personality, but dialed that up significantly in the later years that it turned him into a big star in, in the company. And he had the management and foresight to capitalize on that with where some, some guys are not, they find that popularity, but it's, you you don't have the leverage to get a big deal, but he did. Yeah, for years, he kind of felt like one of those guys where he, one of deeper MMA fans, less casual MMA fans, oh yeah, Jorge Masvidal, he's a very technical fighter, very solid guy. And he just sort of exploded, maybe a bit before the before the flying knee even, that big win over Darren Till where he knocked him out in London. I feel as though that was really the beginning of this next level in popularity for Jorge Masvidal leading up to the big fight against Nate Diaz at MSG or, or even his title fight, title fights against Kamaru Usman, if you want to include those in there as well, which I would. Maybe the greatest beneficiary of a backstage incident uh, with Leon Edwards as well. Like that, that was the star making <laughs> performance in many ways. You're right. Just like a casual oh, line man. that ESPN also just happened to capture on camera, which I think added to it as well that you had, like that to me was the breaking through point for Jorge Masvidal. And he suddenly just became this beloved figure. 
I completely forgot that was on the same card as the Darren Till knockout. I think it was like Leon Edwards versus Gunnar Nelson or something. That feels like 20 years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> so afterwards, um, you know, he gives the speech. And then <laughs> as uh, as Casey Layden stated on, on Twitter, there's nothing more scary than an MMA fighter during his post-fight speech saying, and one more thing. And that's when Masa gives this wonderful speech for Miami, my career. I couldn't have done it without you. I'm a multimillionaire. I started from nothing. And one more thing, I want to point out the greatest president in, in U.S. history and our great governor. Let's keep Florida red. It's like, um, well, th- there we go. Quite the, uh, the stump speech here for, uh, Jorge Masvidal. So we know, uh, we, we knew his political leanings going in and <laughs> coming out of this show. Yeah. Well, we got the big Trump rally here. Um, we knew it was coming the second Jorge Masvidal got the mic, really, but it, to be expected. Gilbert Burns, conversely, it sounds like he is going to serve as the backup fighter, providing they can finalize this Leon Edwards, uh, Colby Covington fight, which they are now talking about the idea of going to London, uh, this summer and whether that can headline. And Leon Edwards, who has been pretty adamantly opposed to, uh, signing on for this fight with, with Covington, but it would seem like the pieces are in place for the fight to take place in London, which would be a big deal for Leon Edwards and Gilbert Burns as the backup fighter, which, I am still waiting for one of these major title fights to actually need to utilize the backup fighter and the champion stating, I'm taking this guy on 24 hours notice. Uh, no, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah, you know what? They, they started introducing this backup fighter thing during a time where it felt like the main events were falling apart every single week. And I feel like since they've started consistently implementing it, it hasn't actually even needed once. So these guys are just kind of cutting weight for nothing. You know, either way, whether it's Colby Covington or Gilbert Burns, that's a solid main event for uh, Leon Edwards' title defense in London. So I-, I think it'll probably be Covington, honestly. Bantamweight fight, Rob Font and Adrian Yanez for... Um, uh, this, to me, was one of the more interesting fights on the entire card. Uh, Yanez is 5-0 uh, and in the UFC since winning on the Contender Series. All stoppages and... Coming, coming in, uh, bonus as well in all five of these UFC appearances against Rob Font, who is coming off losses to Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera. Uh, so some tough competition in his last fight. So his last win was against Cody, Cody Garbrandt. And this first round, um, this was as entertaining as you're going to get in a two minute and 57 second contest. Uh, Font is immediately landing with his right hand, using his jabs. And then, uh, Yanez comes with rights that are instantly finding a home and his jabs are looking fantastic when he blasts Font with a right hand and they're throwing some extremely heavy shots and an uppercut rocks Yanez and Font unloads on him combinations and then drops him with a right hand and finishes him with hammer fists. 257 of the first round and uh, Rob Font wins this really entertaining three-minute fight. Really fun fight while it lasted. These guys just traded hands for three minutes. Adrian Yanez is a really solid. I I was going to say a prospect, but I suppose he's moved beyond that label by this point. But uh, you know what? This was interesting. Rob Font was coming into this, as you said, off of two losses. And it felt like his momentum is kind of quelled uh, after these performances. But when you look back on his fights against Marlon Vera and Jose Aldo, he looks really good throughout them. And then he just gets caught by bombs over and over and over. And you you had to question his durability going into a fight against a fighter like Adrian Yanez. But he had, he had some tough shots here. He fired back and he got the quick finish. So this is really exactly what Rob Font needed at this point in his career. 
Yeah, and and I think for for uh, for for Yanez that he is some, you know 29 years of age. He still has a progression to make. I'm very impressed with him. This was by far his heaviest competition uh, that he has fought in his career, and you know it's ultimately just gotten to the deep waters with a really seasoned striker in Rob Font. But I, I still have very high expectations for him uh, coming off of this loss, and for Rob Font, this will kind of represent to me his his last surge for a big spot in this this super loaded uh, bantamweight division. He's 35, but uh, this win will give him that opportunity for probably a very big fight in in his next one. There's no shortage of them in this weight class. No, it feels like you can't really miss if you're a matchmaker for bantamweight. Everything is going to be an exciting matchup, and everyone's also a dangerous opponent. It doesn't really matter who you stack Rob Fawn up against next. It's going to be a tough fight. That's just what happens at 135 right now. It's the deepest division in the sport. Kevin Holland, what was his record this week? Um, I, I assume he fought five times. He had multiple alter- altercations with Jorge Masvidal throughout the week. They had a, a deal at the the fighter hotel, then at the ceremonial weigh-ins where TMZ had some like helicopter footage of this. I mean, it was uh, something else. So uh, looks like, well, we, we will see if uh, very unlikely that that fight is, is going to happen. But Holland was certainly making his case for it. So he is taking on Santiago Ponzinibbio and Holland. Last we saw him, uh, He's coming off losses to uh, Hamzat Chemaev. That was the 180-pound catchweight debacle uh, from last year. And then as well, a loss to Stephen Thompson last year. But an enormous reach here for Holland. An 81-inch reach for Kevin Holland to uh, 73 inches for Ponzinibbio. The opening round, they're trading kicks to to the lead legs. Ponzinibbio catches the leg. And in the final seconds, Holland catches him with a back fist and drops Ponzinibbio to seal the round. The second, it's uh, Ponzinibbio landing with the right and attacking the lead leg, continuing to use his jab. And then Holland responds with a left hand, and that definitely hurts Ponzinibbio. Third round sees Ponzinibbio landing with leg kicks, while Holland is mainly in his orthodox stance. And then Holland counters with a right hand and drops him with a left hook. This thing is over at 3 minutes and 16 seconds of the third round. And listen, when, when a guy is basically knocked out you give them some leeway on how they react to a knockout Ponzinibbio uh complaining about this stoppage um Dan Mergliata made the right call a hundred percent in in this one dude face planted to the mat and uh, Kevin Holland a pretty spectacular knockout victory uh to get back on the winning track there is absolutely no controversy about the stoppage here this was as clear of a knockout as you'll see um you know Santiago Ponzinibbio, he had a lot of potential at one point and was really coming into his own as a fighter, but he missed a lot of time uh, due to a lot of reasons, some severe illness. And mm-hmm. since he's came back, he's just he's not the same fighter. He's still good. He still hits hard. He's a tough guy, but it's clear he's far from being a contender at this point. And against a younger fighter like Kevin Holland, who had the range advantage, he was the bigger guy, he was quicker, he hit harder. It was a largely a one-sided fight, although Pons had a bit of success with his leg kicks. Uh, a solid bounce-back win for Kevin Holland. Then we uh, we continue on, and uh, and Holland afterwards he was just asked about Masvidal and stated he kind of said he he respects Masvidal, but he's the 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 true BMF, and he wants to fight Masvidal for the BMF title, which uh, I guess the the water was thrown on that one later with uh, Masvidal's speech, so probably not happening. 
Raul Rosas Jr., 18-year-old Raul Rosas Jr. taking on Christian Rodriguez. So this was um, a debated fight because of its placement on the main card. But listen, Raul Rosas Jr. is somebody they are pushing exceptionally hard. And you saw that in the lead up to this. And he's undefeated, but again, 18 years old, won on the Contender Series last September, and then beat uh, Jay Perrin last December at UFC 282. But taking on Christian Rodriguez, who is a 12-2 and fighter, but also missed weight for this contest at 137 pounds. And the first round, you can see, I, I would say, like the... The good and the bad with, with Rosas Jr. Like he comes out and he is so aggressive and Rodriguez is trying to prevent the takedown and Rosas Jr. is just going at such a high clip here. He loses a, an opportunity at a Darce and ends up in side control, but then Rosas gets to the back and is on his back with a body triangle. Rodriguez, though, is staying calm. He's defending, and Rosas takes him to the mat with the choke. Uh, but again, Rodriguez breaks out. It's a clear 10-9 round for Rosas Jr., but then the tide turns in the second, and Rodriguez has withstood all of the output of Rosas Jr. And in the second, Rodriguez takes him to the ground, and he connects with a knee as Rosas shoots in later. And it's Rosas uh, with the level change to take the back, but then Rodriguez gets a reversal, and he ends up on top. Moves to side control, great control here, mounts the back, and he gets a body triangle. And Rosas Jr. is just caught in this position and cannot get out. Rodriguez is landing a lot of strikes. So even for most going into the third round. But the the note by the announcers in between rounds is that Rosas Jr. goes to his corner, which his parents are his corners, by the way. His mother and father are in his corner, which is a bit of a... I I don't know, non-traditional, we can state. And he throws the mouthpiece down. And then the announcers note how many times he made the sign of the cross before the third round. And we have shifted. This was the classic shift of attitude. Okay. They are now talking about how Rosas Jr. He's young. He is in there with a more experienced guy on his walkout. They're making comparisons of Raul Rosas Jr. to an 18 year old Mike Tyson. And now 10 minutes later, it's. Listen, he's in the deep end now, and it's just, dude, we're cashing out already on this potential. Like, this is how hard they push these guys, and then, boom, we're cutting bait, the first sign of uh, of any kind of problems. And Rosas Jr. was in the deep end here against a fighter that is not necessarily a deep end type of a fighter in this division. Um, but the third round, it's more of Rodriguez just tagging him. Very weak attempt by Rosas to uh, take him down. And Rodriguez like glides to his back and he mounts him ground and pound another body triangle that Rosas Jr. had no way of escaping in this fight works for the choke. It's a dominant round for Christian Rodriguez, who wins on all three judges scorecards, 29, 28. And it certainly cools down the momentum on Raul Rosas Jr., who I certainly have a lot of sympathy for. Like this guy has been thrust into a position that I, I don't know if you should be having 18-year-olds in the UFC. So this is going to be a fight that either severely breaks Raul Rosas Jr. or it's one that he goes back and he learns greatly from. He certainly has the time to develop and improve. I don't think anyone should be um, casting conclusions on the on this guy. But like this is the risk you run of like hurting a prospect when he is thrown into the UFC at such a young age. 
Yeah, it's impossible to say what his future will hold. He's still so young, and he's been pushed so heavily. It's like you said, we've seen this a trillion times, where the UFC just goes all in on one of these young prospects, and the second they lose, it's the immediate just, well, he clearly wasn't ready for this. It's like, you were comparing this guy to John Jones 10 minutes ago. Oh, he's the next youngest champion. It's like, okay, you're kind of setting these guys up for failure eventually, but... I, I think it's just he was it, really it, popular with the crowd, so that they were doing something right in terms of marketing. It's just, this guy's really popular. So He's yeah. like I see a lot of potential in him. I just I I think like anyone, you should be kind of cooling the brakes. Like we've seen enough of these examples, and it's like John Jones is the outlier. He is not the template. And I think anytime you hear fighters stating I want to be the youngest UFC champion ever, that's a warning sign to me. That should not be the goal. Um, when, when you're when you're talking about uh just your progression. And yeah, certainly th- this guy in three or four years could be something completely different. And in three or four years, this dude's going to be like 21, 22. Like, think about that. That's insane. Um, he's younger than Eric Marcotte. Put that into perspective, folks. Okay. He's a very young uh, individual here. But I think that he, I think in, in a roundabout way, had he just been caught with a shot in the opening round, he could very well go back and say, I just got caught and deny um what you need to be. He was dominated in this fight. And I, I hope he confronts this loss of it needing to be something where, okay, now I need to take my career to the next level, make big changes, maybe um, jump onto a larger fight camp. He's based in Vegas. There's certainly options for him there. And, and we will see how he responds to this. This is part of the adversity that all fighters have to go through. Um, but I, Overall, like, I just don't think like 18 year olds in the UFC, like, you're, you're really gambling with, um, with their progression when you're, when you're talking about this. And dude, this company, it's just, it's in everyone's nature that you overhype these prospects and just suddenly you're looking at the best case scenario. And man, you've, you've got to slow roll some of these people. Like, you're hearing, like Bo Nickel is like in look at the expectations people have on on a Bo Nickel. It's just natural that people jump to uh, where they could be, and it's it's very tough in the UFC to go at a more reasonable pace as you could maybe like a Bellator, for instance. At least with someone with like Bo Nickel, it, it's more along the same category as Alex Pierre, and in, in the sense that this guy has a very long and accomplished combat sports history with with Raul Ro- Rosas Jr. or somebody like that. It's it's very different. You're seeing that 18 years old, and he already has like what was this his eighth pro fight? Yeah. So uh, it's always concerning when you think like someone this young is taking all of this head trauma. But uh, it is what it is. He's an adult, and he gets to make his own choices. And you know what? Hey, it wasn't all bad either. He looked really good in the first round. He took Rodriguez down with ease. He nearly finished with him a couple of times. If he can work on that gas tank a bit, there's certainly some potential there. There are some things to build upon. But uh, if I were him, I, I would I would not fight for a year. I would take a year off and you just find a camp and just attack. And he could come back a totally different fighter a year from now. Like when you're this young, I don't care like what confidence you have. You are you can be molded in such different ways as a fighter. I would totally take a year off. Like there is no rush for this guy. And he could be something special. We've seen enough of it. The first round, an indication of it. He's certainly got a presence about him. Like he has a lot of confidence in himself. So I, I see a lot of reasons to um not uh cash in your chips on Raul Rosas Jr. Calvin Gastelum against Chris Curtis uh, headlined the uh, the prelim fights, and this ended up being the fight of the night. And 
I'm certainly not going to disagree with that one. This was a, a war between these two. Um, they come out, uh, both are fighting from the uh, southpaw stance, and it's Gastelum using a lot of low kicks and putting his right jab behind it. And Curtis is going to the body, and that would be consistent throughout the fight. And some powerful left hands from Gastelum. His timing was looking really good, and speed as well from Kelvin Gastelum. So um, this opening round um, was Gastelum's round. And what did you think just of the performance uh, of Gastelum just in these opening five minutes? And did you see a noticeable improvement from some of his recent performances? Because this was another guy um, losing five of his last six up against the wall here at middleweight. Yeah, he looked way faster than Chris Curtis in this first round. He was getting in his landing his combinations at will. He was kind of uh, throwing his hooks around the guard of Chris Curtis to great effect. He looked really good here. I, I don't know how to compare it to his like previous fights because like the last Kelvin Gaslam fight I remember is him against Robert Whitaker, who I mean was just so much faster than Kelvin Gaslam. Like you can't imagine the difference in speed between Robert Whitaker and Chris Curtis. So it, I I can't really speak to improvements that Gaslam made here, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he looked really good. The second round, I thought this was such a close round. Again, Gaslam is using the kicks and his, and his jabs. Uh, Curtis rocks him with a combination. And then there's a right hand to the body by Curtis. And Curtis is just going for this body multiple times. Gaslam, though, has some very heavy left hands that are finding a home. And his timing continues to get better as the round continues. Again, the... the um Speed being a, a big factor here. And Curtis was just digging to the body multiple times and then catches him with an uppercut and a left hook to end the round. Uh, there was also the, the key part of the second round, though, is Curtis like goes down to his knees and you're thinking that Gastelum caught him with something and he's getting onto his back and throwing strikes. But then the announcers note that during the replay, it was an accidental clash of heads that caused this and a really like um, relevant question was how the judges saw that because they don't get access to the replays. Um, because, you know, had the announcers not pointed that out, I think that would have swayed all of our thoughts too, that he was clipped with something because that's certainly how he reacted. Um, so that played a big factor, I think, in this second round in terms of how you interpreted it. Because if you take that away from Gastelum and it's a clash of heads, like a really, really close, I thought this was the closest round and this is what the fight came down to. So did I, although interestingly, even if the judges and the audience are completely aware that it was a clash of heads that sent Curtis down, the most significant offense of the round arguably came from the brutal ground and pound right hands that Gaslam was throwing as Curtis Mm -hmm. uh, turtled up on the ground. So I think you have to count those either way, and that's likely enough to edge the round towards Gaslam, but it's just kind of unfortunate that that happened to Chris Curtis in an otherwise very competitive round. Uh, but Curtis comes out with his best round in the third. He is, uh, th- these two at, at a certain point late in the fight, they just go for all of it. And they are just, dude, this is the, uh, this is the climax of, uh, the, of a Rocky movie. They are just throwing everything at one another. Uh, there's a short elbow that lands by Curtis, a knee up the middle, continuing, uh, to go for the body and hitting a lot of right hands. So I had, uh, I was in the minority here, but I, I had Curtis, uh, 29-28. I valued heavily the, like, the body shots, but I thought the second was a super close round. And I think that's what the, the fight came down to. But the judges scored this 
and 29-28. I would, I would state that a 30-27 for Gaslam was pretty tough based on the third round that I thought, I thought round one is easily Gaslam's round. And I thought the third was easily Chris Curtis's round, but, um, the right guy won here. I, I feel in, uh, Calvin Gaslam, even though it went against my, my scorecard. I think you look at that second round and, and you're right. Like just because of the headbutt, it doesn't diminish the, the ground and pound that came out of that, that he was able to land. It was a very competitive fight, and it was super entertaining. No shocker that this one fight of the night, I thought this is one of the most fun fights of the year to this point. They were just throwing absolute bombs at each other, and it's remarkable that neither guy really went down for many of these shots throughout the fight. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum, known for his remarkable chin, but Chris Curtis was in the same boat here. Uh, he took some bombs, never went down, and he, he was throwing hard for all 15 minutes, so this was a really entertaining fight. Kelvin Gaslam picks up a, a win, his first big win in a very long time. Like this guy has been through the middleweight grinder. He has he's lost five of his last six fights, all against very tough competition. So he really needed this one, or he was going to fall out of the rankings. Yeah, I mean, this guy's been through quite the path since since the Izzy fight, and that's going back four or five years when we're, we're talking about that fight, which was a, a war uh, that those two had uh, a number of years ago. So a huge win for Kelvin Gastelum. And, you know, it, it keeps him it, within this, in this middleweight pool, uh, so to speak. I, I would love to see one day a rematch with Adesanya and Gastelum. I just don't know if Gastelum has that in him to get back to a title fight. But just because of the first fight, it was such a classic fight. But I, I think that Gastelum, it's going to be tough to imagine him working his way up to that level as, you know, a loss here. Would it have been out of the question that this guy would have been like right on the fringes of um, this could have been his PF, PFL audition? He's oh, that's rough. Yeah, you're right though. This very well could. I'm not kidding. If he loses six of seven, like that's tough. Six of seven. He's fought some really incredible guys, but you know, you lose to a Chris Curtis, and it's six of seven. Not out of the realm of possibility. Not at all. This very well could have been it for him if he had lost here. You know, on the prelims of a card, a place that Kevin Gaston hasn't been in for a very long time. Some of his, some of his losses have been very close fights, but there's also been ones like the Jack Hermanson one where he just gets knee barred in about a minute or the Robert Whitaker one where Whitaker completely outclassed him for 25 minutes. So it's he, he needed a strong win. That's what he got here. I, I can't say what's next for him. I don't know if this is like a, a resurgence for Calvin Gastelum. I, I don't know if he's a better fighter than he was a year and a half ago because it's a significant drop in competition. So I, I think we'll probably find out in this next one. Yeah, th- this was number 14 versus number 15. So I don't know if this is, th- this should elevate Gastelum's standing from 15th in the division, but I don't see him cracking the top 10 with, with this performance. So it's relative where he is in the middleweight division, but a great performance for him. Michelle Watterson Gomez and Luana Pinheiro was next and they went, they, they went the distance here. Uh, Watterson Gomez you know, relying very much on her, on her karate style here and utilizing her, her front leg with her attacks, a ton of, uh, spinning offense in, in this fight from her. Uh, Pinheiro was using very heavy leg kicks, especially in the second round and having quite a lot of balance here to stay on her feet as Watterson was, or sorry, vice versa. When Watterson uh, was staying on her feet, they traded big right hands at the end of the second. And in the third, uh, Pinheiro ties her against the cage, is delivering knees to the body. And then Watterson comes back with these front kicks as she comes off the fence, more spinning attacks, but not really landing with, with much. There's a right jab and then more side kicks. And it ends with an elbow uh, from Watterson Gomez. So after three rounds, um, I had a 29-28 for 
Waterson Gomez, but the judges went the other way. It was a split decision, uh, but it is Luana Pinero winning uh, 29-28 in her favor and one judge having it for Waterson Gomez. I gave her the first and the third, but how did you score, Derek? I had the exact same scorecard as you here. I thought Waterson Gomez had a far better utilizing her range effectively than she had in a lot of her previous bouts. These two women, this was a pretty entertaining fight. I thought they were hitting each other hard, but perhaps there was a uh, a perceived advantage in damage or opening, but it's tough to say. It was a really close fight. I took no issues with the decision at all, despite disagreeing with it. Joe Pfeiffer defeated Gerald Mearshart by TKO at 315 of the first. There was a, a combination with a left hook and then a right follow-up that drops Mearshart. And then he drops shots on top as Mearshart is just covering up. And Mark Goddard gave him more than ample opportunity to respond, and he did not. So it ends at 315 of the first. Pfeiffer has now won four straight, and he stated that at 26 years of age, he's lived a lot of life. He started fighting at four, at the age of four, and, um, you know, he's, he's been through a lot, he stated. So, um, there, there you go. He's, uh, he's a 24 year or a 22 year veteran of, uh, combat sports. Wow. I can't believe Masvidal was going on about his long and lengthy career when he can't even compare it to a Joe Pfeiffer here on the early prelims. He should really get over himself. Uh, Lupe, uh, Godinez defeated Cynthia Calvillo by split decision. This was a, another relatively close fight, but I had a, I had Godinez winning the, the first and second rounds into the third. Um, you know, Calvillo was, was in this. Um, she's landing lots of jabs, uh, way more output, but not landing at a higher percentage than, uh, Godinez. And then, uh, at the end, it was, um, a body lock by Godinez trying to slam her, but Calvillo just, uh, broke free. Close third round, but I gave the third to Calvillo. Uh, judges going, 30-27, 29-28, and one judge scoring it for Cynthia Calvillo as uh, Godinez uh, improves to, well, she was coming off a win against Angela Hill in in her last fight here. So, um, nonetheless, getting a win here at Strawweight. Fine fight, but uh, not one that was a giant standout either. Uh, my notes say I scored it 29-28 for Calvillo, and I'm choosing to trust them. So that, that's my <laughs> thoughts on that fight. This is a long time ago during during the card, uh, to be fair. And uh, let's just quickly go through the results of the early pre- prelims. We had Ignacio Bahamondes defeating uh, Trey Ogden by unanimous decision, 30-27, 30-27, 29-28. Uh, just to me, was the, the, the more seasoned striker here. It was... Not the most entertaining fight, but he just seemed to, you know, through his jabs and calf kicks, uh, really good utilization of of feints. Um, I had him winning all three rounds here and uh, defeating Trey Ogden, who's, you know, looked fine here. But this was, to me, just um, a, a better striker in Baja Mondes, And this was all contested on the feet. So Ogden really did not get to um, show off his ground game in any way. Not one of the more like spectacular finishes that we've seen from Ignacio Bayamondes as of late, but it was a very complete performance. Uh, Ogden was a game opponent, but Bayamondes was just a, a couple steps ahead of him on the feet, and he rode his way out to the decision. Steve Garcia knocked out Shylin Nerdombeka in uh, 36 seconds of the second round. Uh, Nerdombeka won the first round uh, after dropping him um, with the with this beautiful shot. 
and uh, goes for a takedown near the end of the round. Uh, in the second, though, Garcia comes back and he's attacking the body, hits a short left uppercut, and then does a push kick right to the liver and follows with a left hand to the identical spot. It's like the he hit the liver and then boom, he just compounded it with this shot afterwards. And just for good measure, uh, some more hammer fists. The gods were being very generous on Saturday night with their distribution of hammer fists. And, uh, dude, uh, Nerd and Becca was not getting up anytime soon after this knockout from the, these body shots. So 36 seconds of the sec- second round, uh, Steve Garcia gets the victory and uh, improves to 14 and four. That was a pretty entertaining fight for the early prelims. I thought Garcia was done after that knockdown, but it was an impressive recovery from him. And the body shot knockouts, always brutal, always brutal to watch. And the opening fight of the entire night, uh, Jacqueline Amorim, who was a fighter with, with LFA coming over here, making her UFC debut and was a sizable favorite here, a minus 255 favorite against Sam Hughes, uh, who had won two of her last three and was coming off a decision loss to, uh, Piero Rodriguez last October. Um, Amorim looked great in the first round. I mean, she nearly choked Hughes out multiple times and I don't know how Hughes survived some of these chokes, uh, but she did. I thought it was enough for a 10-8 round for uh, Amarim, but then Hughes, it was a total reversal. Uh, not all that different from the Raul Rosas Jr. fall-off after the first round, and Amarim is just constantly um, reaching for Hughes' gloves, and Hughes is calling on the ref, who is warning her time after time. Very tired is Amarim, and Hughes is just in the guard, but very active, landing strikes in uh, Amarim's guard. This continued in the third, where, dude, Hughes uh, dominated this round. She is uh, seated against the fence, and Hughes is just landing tons of strikes on her. Amarim gets up, and Hughes just lights her up in the closing seconds. So, um, none of the judges went 10-8 in the first. I thought this was a draw, but it was a 29-28 across the board for Sam Hughes. And certainly, she won rounds two and three, and Amarim won the first. I don't know if there's much more to put it there. No, I, you can pretty much copy and paste my thoughts from the Rodriguez-Rosas Jr. fight into this one and just switch up the names. It was a very similar fight with Sam Hughes in the role of Christian Rodriguez here. A, a strong performance from her. Now, I know you were in a, in a bit of a funk going into this card because uh, one of your favorites, Chase Sherman, uh, pulled out the day of due to a medical issue. He was supposed to fight Carl Williams, and we were deprived of this heavyweight contest, Eric. Uh, do you think, um, you know, probably headlining a fight night card at, at minimum? Don't even joke, because I could see that headlining a fight night card in 2023. This is an That's apex main event if there at. ever was one. Carl Williams and Chase Sherman. You know, I, I hope Chase Sherman is doing well. I hope it's a non-serious medical issue, but I'm not going to lie to you or the post-wrestling audience. I fucking cheered when they announced that the unranked heavyweight fight was removed from this card on the broadcast. I was so excited that I didn't have to sit through this fight. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get rebooked. Yes, they both did weigh in for their heavyweight contest, but yes, hopefully nothing serious with uh, Chase Sherman. Also, the, the other most notable uh, par- part of this broadcast was... The announcement that the Robbie Lawler Rory McDonald fight from UFC 189 will be inducted into the fight wing of the UFC Hall of Fame. So this is quite the class that they have assembled this year. So joining this fight, which uh, many would point to as maybe the most violent fight in UFC history and one that had uh, unquestionable effects on Rory McDonald's career. And I think you would extend that to Robbie Lawler as well. John McCarthy has called this the uh, the toughest fight he has ever had to officiate, uh, which is covering some ground. But that fight joins Jens Palver, 
Jose Aldo, Donald Cerrone, and Anderson Silva uh, that will be inducted into this uh, class. So a pretty loaded Hall of Fame class uh, coming up this summer. Yeah, they're really going all out on this one. I mean, hey, this is as worthy of a induction of a fight as you will possibly find. Uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's being inducted just as Roy McDonald's uh, dealings with Bellator and the PFL have ended, although... Uh, there was noticeably no interviews with him, and he wasn't seen in the crowd either, so perhaps there's something to that. Regardless, well-deserved, one of the best fights of all time. There are crazier fights and wilder fights that have happened. This one starts kind of slow, picks itself up, but I don't know if there's a single fight in all of mixed martial arts that really just showcases such an extreme level of willpower and resiliency at the elite level. Seeing both of these men Rory's face just kind of caving inward first while Robbie has these huge hematomas across his head and his lips split all the way to the nose, staring each other down, uh, getting ready for a fifth round. Nothing quite like it. It's a one of a kind fight. If you have not seen this fight, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, but man, that fifth round, it's as dramatic as they come. And you hear the cliche of like leaving it all in the cage. I mean, this is the living embodiment of that, that phrase of a fight that I think definitely was, um, impacted both men's uh, careers, certainly for Rory. Like he would still have that, that Douglas Lima win when he goes to Bellator, but. Uh, he, to me, he was never the same after this fight. It was, uh, it was unworldly and then followed the only way possible. You go from this fight to, uh, a live performance from the dude from Stained. For Chad <laughs> yes, Mendes. of course. Yes. Chad Mendes's walkout. Uh, it, what you said about Roy McDonald definitely rings true. I, I don't think he was ever quite the same fighter after that fight with Robbie. It was more the, more the culmination the accumulation of all over of time. Fights. Like, all this of guy these came back insane fight that he was in time after this fight, time again. This fight is in July, and he comes back in January and has that Condit fight. Like, think about it. Yeah, that. And, and guess what, guys? That that fight against Carlos Condit might be the inductee into the fight wing of the Hall of Fame next year. That's how good that fight was. And you can probably throw Lawler versus Hendricks one in there. That was his fight like right before this. So it's it was just an unbelievable stretch of fights where he took an incredible amount of damage. So at that stage of his career where he was already an older fighter with nearly, what, 15, 20 years of experience, eventually the wheels were going to slow down for Robbie Lawler, who is still competing. We mentioned that uh, Gastelum and Chris Curtis got the fight of the night. Performance of the night bonuses going to uh, Adesanya and Rob Font. And we'll just quickly look at what's coming up for the UFC next weekend. It's a rare fight night card outside of the Apex. They are going to Kansas City, Missouri. For Max Holloway and Arnold Allen, um, you go through the rest of these, some of these fight nights coming up. I mean, it is, um, it is some slim pickings on the undercard, but this is an awesome main event for next weekend. Yeah, that's a really exciting main event. I, I don't want to know what the rest of the card was because it will kill my mood, but that's, that, that's a, a solid of a main event as you will see for a fight night. It's like 14 fights you have to look forward to next weekend. Oh, you uh, didn't have to say that either, but okay. <laughs> the weekend after that, it's a Sergey Pavlovich and Curtis Blades in the main event at, uh, at heavyweight. And, uh, again, Ugh. a very lengthy fight card that is back at the apex. So if you've missed the, the huh. empty gym, uh, they will be back on April 22nd. After that, it's another fight night on April 29th, which man, Hanato Moikano getting his UFC main event against Armand Sarukian, which, I look forward to Moicano, uh, regardless, but 
dude, some of these undercards, I mean, really take, take a look at them, uh, Eric. But the next time we will have a post show, it's going to be UFC 288, which is happening on May the 6th. Now, this will be the same night as WWE Backlash. So we figured in honor of Henry Cejudo coming out of retirement, we're going to have our own MMA retirement breached. And that is going to be the returning Phil Chair Talk to join Eric Marcotte to go over uh, UFC 288 from the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, uh, which includes Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo for the bantamweight title, Charles Oliveira against Benil Dariush, Crone uh, Gracie is returning to take on Charles Jordan, Jessica Andrade against Yan Shaunan, and uh, Bryce Mitchell against Jonathan Pierce uh, among the uh, the fights here. It's a uh, it's a good card. I think largely your interest level will be reserved for the top two fights on this card. Oh, all of those fights sound fantastic to me. A lot of grappling heavy fights between some really high level fighters. I- I'm excited for that one top to bottom. And, uh, I'm glad we have Phil back. I mean, this is already his like third comeback from retirement. He's basically post wrestling's Terry Funk already, but yeah, we're always happy to have him. Okay, always, always an open door policy here with uh, the one and only uh, Phil Chair Talk. And it's also an open door policy for you. So I uh, want to give a shout out to uh, Kevin Carrillo, who has joined video.postwrestling.com. Welcome to the community. And we have some questions, which actually just means it's uh, it's a private text conversation between Eric and Brandon from New Jersey that Brandon lets us in on. So uh, let's see what Brandon has for us. A $10 super chat, which is the only reason I'm reading this. During the Trump de-sentimonious rally Masvidal stated started were you disappointed he didn't bring up CRT and book burning uh, moving on you know what? I think that one's directed towards you John <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one that is actually directly for you uh, Eric ah. what are your favorite moments from this season of Vanderpump Rules Johnny can't stop talking about this season absolutely insane can you tell us about Vanderpump Rules in 60 seconds or less what is this show and what is the appeal because this has become a big breakout hit for Bravo uh, well first I'll, I'll answer Brandon's question uh, my favorite moments was when the protagonist was in that long ventured story that accumulated at the end of the season so I hope that satisfies you Brandon John I have no idea what this is I have no idea what the Vanderpump Rules is about do not listen to anything Brandon says I, I, don't, I do not know anything me, I don't. about this show <laughs> well we always appreciate Brandon uh, joining us and uh, you can always hear Brandon from New Jersey on uh, on his own show he pretty much gets the last five minutes of Rewind to Smackdown every Friday night when he uh, when he well so graces us with his his calls into the program but Eric uh, we are always uh, grateful to have you uh, join us and uh, we hope you enjoy the rest of your your Easter Sunday and uh, all the fight nights coming your way over the next few weekends uh, God you have like 50 fights to uh, to cover and probably 10 of them to really sink your teeth into uh 10 is being extremely extremely generous i'm definitely being a bit a bit more generous than than possible but dude that that main event next weekend looks awesome with uh arnold allen and max holloway i i would a part of me would die if if that was taking place in the apex like that would be soul crushing to watch those two have to fight in the apex i'm just happy the fight's happening that that might be the light that gets me through the rest of uh april and mma and we're getting a Canadian return. They are going to be doing the June pay-per-view, June 10th at Rogers Place in Vancouver. So their first date in Canada since 2019. And that will feature Amanda Nunez and Juliana Pena, three. Absolutely brutal. A fight that nobody asked for. Um, 
The tagline, wow. actually, Eric has just added to the poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll put butts in seats. Um, listen, the market is starved that it might do well regardless, but that is as a very weak headliner after the result of their second fight. Scale of 1 to 10, rank uh, UFC 287. I'm going to give it a uh, 7.5. It was a very solid card. I'm in a good mood after it, and, and the main event was very fun to watch. I thought that, uh, yeah, the main event was so dramatic. I thought it was like, uh, I had a ton of anticipation and it was uh, just one of those really, really dramatic fights with an incredible outcome. And dude, that Calvin Gastelum, Chris Curtis fight will probably be a candidate for, for fight of the year, at least, uh, in the mix. Maybe doesn't win it, but, uh, that was a really, really great fight. If you're going to go out of your way to see one fight on this card. So that's going to wrap things up. Uh, we will be back next month. Well, I should say Eric will be back next month with Phil Chair Talk. So that will be coming out the weekend of UFC 288. And thanks for everyone joining us live. We appreciate the support. As always, you can check out Eric's reports up at postwrestling.com. He covers every single UFC fight that happens, whether it's the first prelim in front of five people at the Apex or a sold out Kaseya Center with our two headliners tonight, Israel Adesanya and Alex Pereira. He has got you covered. So, Eric, thank you as always. And uh, we are going to be signing off. So thanks for joining us. And that concludes our UFC 287 post show.